The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia. My name is Gemma Purdy. As the year draws to a close, in Indonesian political circles, things are gearing up as the race towards the 2024 legislative and presidential elections, still over two years away, begins in earnest. Whilst the government and the Indonesian Electoral Commission are still unable to agree on dates for the concurrent elections, which must be held by May in that year, with no incumbent on the presidential ticket, gossip and speculation about potential candidates is already well underway. As we look forward to 2024, what issues are expected to dominate campaigning? Who are some of the likely candidates to emerge in the battle for president? And what sort of legacy is Joko Widodo hoping to leave behind? To answer these questions and many more, my guest today is Philips Vermont from the CSIS and Indonesian International Islamic University. Welcome and thank you for joining us on Talking Indonesia. Welcome back. Thank you for inviting me again. The 2024 electoral race is still a long way away, more than two years, but it is being talked about in the newspapers and we're also seeing signs of campaigning already happening around the place. A few weeks ago, the Jakarta Post, for example, wrote an editorial where it said, please set the date for the election. So, What's this all about, Phillips? Why is there this sense of urgency about scheduling the election program, which isn't due till 2024? Right. I think there are a number of reasons for that. Number one, the political context itself. I think it's important to note there will be no incumbent in 2024. So in itself, the field is wide open. And so I think so many actors wanted to shape the whole system, the way election is conducted and to place people in the KPU, for example, or, or in, the, in the other election committees, uh, election related agencies and so on and so forth. So that's, I think, number one, because the field is rather wide open. So people are trying to influence the way the election will be conducted in 2024. And secondly, of course, if it is going as planned, we will have all the election in 2024. And then I think the plan was to have all elections, regional elections, presidential elections, uh, legislative election in one year in 2024. That was mandated by the laws, right? But now I think there has been discussion among the politicians themselves and among the political parties themselves that you know it's going to be very exhaustive to mobilize resources for them you know to fund campaigns or in one year for regional elections presidential elections uh, parliamentary elections so uh, i think they now realize that it it is going to be very hard and the pretext is not only hard for uh, political players political parties or candidates but also for the election commissioners, uh, the election committees to have such a huge and a big event all together in 2024 and things might go wrong. Uh, that's, I think, the argument. They pointed out the fact that, in, for example, in 2019, we had concurrent 
presidential and legislative election. And you remember the news about uh, how many election officers died because of exhaustion. And then that's only two events combined into one. But if we have in one year all these regional elections, you can imagine 500 districts, mayors, cities, regencies, and provinces, the size and the scope of work would be very hard for everyone. So mm-hmm. they are debating you know, uh, how uh, to best approach this. And, and that's why it seems to me that you know, because of the debates, of the discussions among themselves, they rather find it difficult to specify the dates. So does it sound likely now that perhaps the regional elections might be pushed out? Yes, that would be uh, one alternative. But uh, in terms of governance, that would be problematic as well because that means you will have appointed head of districts, a mayor appointed, not elected temporarily by the Ministry of Home Affairs. And then, the, as we know, the appointed officials would not have the authority to make strategic decisions, right? Because they are temporarily appointed until we have election. And uh, that means some of these governors and mayors and head of district will end their term next year in 2022. And also in 2023, there will be more than 100. So you can imagine in terms of governance, when decisions must be made, and they could not make strategic decisions. By law, they will be restrained. But we have the context of recovery from the pandemic. And then we don't know whether the pandemic will will, will be getting worse again and so on and so forth. So it's uh, from a governance perspective, I think it's rather a difficult situation uh, in Indonesia. So I think we have to put this in the context of not only the interest of the candidates and political parties, but also from really <laughs> governance perspective. So I think that's why they are debating, you know, uh, all this uh, thing again. Right. Yeah. So on the one hand, you have this incredible logistical exactly. um, program, which is right. sounds, you know, incredible. And then on the other hand, you have the political parties jockeying for the best position for themselves in all of this. But there is agreement, though, isn't there, that you need to have the legislative and presidential elections by May 2024 right. in order for the new government to be installed in the following September. Yeah, I think they wanted to have the exact day of election for the presidential and legislative election because then they want to count down when all the processes started, right? Because uh, you need at least one year before. So that means starting 20, May 2023, You know, all this nomination process, coalition building, and so on will be started. So they want to know, you know, exactly when, so they could start uh, strategizing. You know, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like they kind of already have, haven't they? I mean, that's the reality of these things. As you outlined in the beginning, there, there's uh, no incumbent. Therefore, every party has to field candidates, right. particularly for the presidential election. Can you tell us? Who is eligible to run for the presidency in 2024, Phillips? What hurdles must the political parties get over in order to field a candidate? Right. By law, there's this requirement of a party or a group of political parties to have at least 25% of the total votes uh, in the election or 20% of the seats in the DPR, in the parliament. So uh, they have to fulfill and meet this requirement. That means... You know, so far, uh, probably it's only PDIP that can afford to fill their own candidates. But the other political parties, for sure, they need to group together. Although PDIP might be able to nominate a, a candidate by itself, that wouldn't be wise. 
So they will somehow, I think, find a partner in making the coalition. And that's where uh, this political moves and strategies uh, come uh, to the fore. While the other political parties, of course, especially the smaller one, they have uh, very little room to maneuver because the barrier to entry is so high. You know, 20% of the seats and 25% of the votes uh, is just too big. And uh, actually, there have been movement by civil society, academics, and uh, actually some, of course, uh, smaller political parties. They want to lower the requirement. And from a sociological perspective, uh, I think we need that because uh, with such a barrier to entry, we end up, uh, most of the time, we end up having only two candidates. And uh, you know what happened if you have only two candidates in a presidential election in a country as diverse as Indonesia, you know, the, the social divisions. Uh, we, we had that in 2019 and the scars carried over. Uh, if you only have two candidates, the mobilization would be, either one of them would use some kind of primordial sentiments to mobilize. Yeah, so it's very polarizing. Yeah, they, they, they become polarized. And then, mm, uh, mm, the, mm. The, the candidates become uh, polarizing figures as well. So it, I think it's not ideal for yeah. Indonesia. One solution to that is to lower the barrier to entry. So we would then have three, four tickets, you know, on, on the ballot uh, during the, the presidential election. But mm-hmm. of course, some big parties would not want to do that. And that's the the problem because in order to change this, you need political parties. And of course, political parties will work on the in- political incentive that they think best for them. So it's kind of stuck. And then the, we probably, we will end up, you know, having uh, only uh, two two pairs of candidates in the election. Yes, like last time. Right. So, Phillips, we're talking about what the parties think is important, but you've observed there that for social reasons, the candidature should be much broader. But what do we know, too, about how Indonesians are going to approach their voting in the legislative, but particularly the presidential elections? What have we learned from the past about how Indonesians are motivated? Is it down to party loyalty? Is it more about the personality of the leaders or a combination? Well, presidential election, of course, will personalize a campaign. So figure is, I think, in this sense, is very important. And then I think in the past, at least since uh, SBY, the role of uh, personality, I think, is is very important. And campaign is organized along this personality-led campaign that you try to sell the the candidates and not really the, the program and so on and so forth. And I think at this point, uh, we have to acknowledge that uh, in Indonesia, we have yet to have some kind of, a, if I may use the term, sophisticated voters that would rather evaluate candidates based on their economic performance or, uh, you know, program and so on. But uh, it's always coming down to some kind of primordial uh, judgment, yeah, either ethnicity you know, you know uh, in Indonesia up until today, people are still thinking that they, uh, it's rather very difficult or even impossible for a candidate, a non-Javanese candidate to win, right? Because of this very strong Javanese culture. I'm not saying that the Javanese would not vote for non-Javanese, but I think because a campaign is personalized, then a candidate that can really relate to Javanese voters, right? that uh, the Javanese would feel comfortable 
Uh, and uh, of course, uh, the large number of voters are Japanese. So I think it's about communication with people, whether or not voters will feel comfortable. And naturally, you know, uh, Japanese would uh, speak comfortably with uh, fellow Japanese, right? It's not that the Japanese would not vote for non-Japanese, but it's just, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's a cultural thing. So personality is, is still, uh, I think, important. And mm-hmm. then, the, but uh, in the past, uh, I think two elections, uh, we start to see, although small, but the, uh, it's, it's a development that people also start to see that program or policies are important. I think especially in the time of pandemic, right? Because it really affects you it's really affect individuals and it really affects your survival you know as a, as a human being people really now i think observing how political figures the president uh, right now president joko or governors whether they really work hard to make sure that people survive from covid-19 and then the, if you survive then the, whether or not you provide some kind of a social or economic assistance in order for you to to continue your life you know people are losing their jobs and then uh, unemployment soar uh, and so on so we start to see this element in the people evaluation on the performance of our political leaders political mm. parties and so on that's interesting yeah, yeah because and- i mean that then it leads to a question about mm. incumbency and whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing to mm. be in a position of power currently for example in a ministerial role or be a governor or a mayor or is it more advantageous to come fresh as a candidate without the record that is good or bad right. <laughs> so there's yeah yeah, yeah and uh, i think uh, you know the silver lining of this pandemic is that before before the pandemic you know uh, we have this decentralization program going on right and uh, we we do have local elections and so on but when it comes to policies i think sometimes people uh, find it difficult to you know in the literature we have this assignment of responsibility thing because of the multi level governance in indonesia in the context of multi party system so we as a voter if you are a voter then you will find it difficult who is responsible for your well being you know is it your local government is it your mayor or is it your governor or is it the president because it's multi-layered you know policies right but now with the pandemic the people now realize that your mayor or your district head bupati you know might have some responsibilities as well they could see whether or not the the mayor or the bupati or the governor work hard and then also they could point out whether the president and the central government work hard uh, they know that uh, for example vaccine should come from the central government and then when it comes to the implementation vaccine roll out then you know that it's your mayor or it's your region who are responsible for that. So, you know, things I think it's getting interesting. I mean, what you're describing there, I think that's happened also here in Australia and and in other countries where we've all had a real lesson in civics in in governance, in how politics works, in how government works and the right. different layers and of responsibility. It seems to me as you're kind of pointing out, it will have a significant impact on the way voters go in the next election and considering to Phillips that there will be this uh, large number of young voters right in 2024 exactly. something like yeah 60% of voters under 40 so yeah. that means a lot of voters for the first time yeah, interesting been, uh, actually i've been saying this for quite some times i remember in 2013 i was uh, 
I was at the ANU for the Indonesian update. And uh, that was the uh, election before President Jokowi, where we had this, uh, what is it, excitement about the possibility of uh, non, uh, non-political, quote-unquote, non-political figures, outsider, to be a president in Indonesia, right? Uh, he was a mayor and then governor, and then uh, becoming the, uh, the prospect of he uh, uh, being elected at, at, in 2013 was, was pretty clear. And then the uh, part of the excitement at that time, and I think uh, one of the legacy of President Jokowi that we in Indonesia have to admit is that he creates a precedent of uh, governors or mayors to become a, a, a national leader. Uh, before him, the source of leadership is only you know from either party leaders, military general, or some uh, political figure in Jakarta, right? With no technical experience in governing you know if you are mayor or governor uh, certainly you will have that kind of experience and you are facing with the problem of public service delivery uh, that's why you understand that uh, bureaucracy in indonesia is cumbersome and then the, it's difficult for people to get things done quickly and so on uh, now with pandemic in my opinion it should reinforce the perception among the people that what we need is a, a leader that have this uh, technocratic capacity, technocratic skills, because uh, you are dealing with a pandemic, you cannot settle the problem with just uh, having a political meeting in the party headquarters, right? You need, <laughs> you need scientists, you need to think about vaccines development, you need to think about you know, bureaucracy, you need to train people, then you su- suddenly realize that our probably health workers are not enough. So all these technocratic things now I think it becoming more and more important for people. And I think people realize, especially the young people. Yeah, and I know that this is something that, as you say, you've been talking about for a while and mm-hmm. it was something that predates the pandemic that you and others, you know, were pointing towards, you know, I guess it's the Jokowi effect in a way, the rise of these technocrats coming through as governors or mayors. You wrote in 2019 where you said that, you know, maybe this will be the beginning of a truly generational change Right. A massive transformation for Indonesian politics where you see figures like Ganjar Pranowo or um, Ridwan Kamil and yeah. similar coming through. Do you think that maybe you're more convinced by this even yeah, now? Yeah, but uh, the biggest obstacle is the requirement that this only political party can nominate. So, you know, in the end, it will be in the hands of political parties, right? Many of these figures that you mentioned they are not affiliated with political parties. Ridwan Kamil is not. Um, uh, Ganjar Pranowo is part of PDIP, but uh, of course, we don't know for sure whether PDIP seems to have someone else in mind. Right? And then that's, I think, the challenge for us to have this kind of a continuation of what President Jokowi started in 2014. So this is a kind of never-ending circle because if you want to change, you need to change the law. If you want to change the law, it's political parties who have, yeah. who have the, the authority. And then the, so you are circling around uh, the same problem. Mm. But I think with more pressures from the public, like what happened in 2013, that President Jokowi was clearly getting uh, phenomenal support. Political parties had no option. Exactly. So this is where I wanted to ask about this notion of electability. 
in Indonesia already, they have been polling now for months on the electability of particular candidates. Right. As you said, back in 2013, Jokowi was rating off the charts. Uh, it couldn't be ignored by the political parties. So can you explain to us, what do the polls base electability on? Uh, certainly, it's a, a perception of the public about figures that they think is more electable than others. You know, so it's a public perception. But the thing is this, I think. We have seen in these surveys, uh, figures like Prabowo uh, maintains a pretty high level of support, right? And then, the, of course, we, we do have Ganjar Pranowo, the governor of central Java province, uh, Anis Baswedan, the governor of Jakarta, and Ridwan Kamil, and then some others, uh, I think, new political figures that emerged in the past five years. And then this is also very interesting. Now, I think there are several sources of leadership right now, right? party leaders uh, for one. And then I think head of local government, governor, mayors, and so on. We should be talking as well about vice presidential candidates. Now, I think the third potential source of leadership, either for presidential candidate or vice presidential candidates, you know, I've, I've observed some interesting development. President Jokowi himself is not a bureaucrat for sure. He's not a party leader for sure. He's a businessman. So he naturally, I think, like figures with the background of private sector. That's why I think some of the top important position in the cabinet are not given to party leaders. It's important position. Finance ministers have never been given to political party figures. Now you have Minister of State-Owned Enterprise, Eric Tohir, coming from private sector background. You have Lutfi as the Minister of Trade, and then also to some extent, Sandiaga Uno. He's, uh, he's with Garindra, but he's been seen as a, a person coming from, from business sector. So now you see this group of people in the cabinet, right? <laughs> and uh, I think I would not be surprised if President Jokowi is kind of a grooming this group of people. It's new source of leadership as well. I think I would not be surprised if the president sees them as an important part of his governing bodies. Certainly, President Jokowi always think about how to expand, to deepen, in, uh, to invite investors coming from overseas, you know, infrastructure development that certainly would need some technocratic skills and so on. And uh, it, it can be provided by this group of people. So I've sent some growing political influence of this group of people. Yeah, they are all names that are mentioned in, in these electability polls <laughs> and surveys. So that sounds about right. They start to be, uh, you know, people start to see them. But, you know, underlying this is really, I think, President Jokowi's conviction. You actually really need to, to give space for private sectors. I think he genuinely wants to have more investment, more reform in Indonesia so that businesses will come. And then the, also to grow the Indonesian economy, uh, so on and so forth. So they are getting more and more influential, I think. And then they also, I think they will be an important players as well in 2024. And then so we will have a, a good mix of people. You know? um, yeah. Have head of local governments combined with this private sectors, people. And then, the, well, to some extent, you still have, uh, of course, party support. Now, my concern is this. With this pandemic, I think we are entering a new era of big government because it's only the government that in this kind of situation where economy is slowing down, you know, uh, people losing their job, inequality rise and so on and so forth. It's only the government, not only in Indonesia, I think, across the globe, uh, only the government that has money. They are the ones who provide social assistance, subsidies, 
bail out you know during the, the pandemic so naturally then you have this era of big government and then that's why uh, i think uh, in the case of indonesia president jokowi would ally himself more with the political parties because he needs support to pass on legislation that would relate to job creation for example the uh, omnibus law or uh, in terms of monetary policies to balance the budget and so on it certainly needs a political support there's mm. no way that he could easily shift the government budget without support from political parties yeah i mean he has done that well hasn't he it's been a hallmark that he has managed to build coalition so that now you know it's really not clear i mean indonesia doesn't have a, a strong opposition isn't that the case that you have the democrats and the pks outside of government but they're the only ones and they're relatively small and so you you don't have that at the moment but what will be interesting won't it is to see if that emerges in a race for uh, the legislative and for presidential elections in 2024 and where that kind of schism might come from like what would be the issues that would create conflict i guess well i think if there is no pandemic president jokowi would uh, end up the term with with flying colors right because he he did I think pretty well. He did so much in terms of infrastructure at the level that we've never seen before in Indonesia and this reform in the bureaucracies and so on. But pandemic certainly affect I think his thinking as well that uh, of course naturally a president would want to see the legacies uh, continues on. Now with the pandemic there is this uh, uh, possibility of suddenly people would only judge you at the the last year of your presidency uh, depending on uh, how you deal with the pandemic right so now i think the question will be uh, how would president jokowi place himself in 2024 whether he would be just leaving office you know uh, and then the let whoever you know Uh, becoming the president uh, would not care uh, whether or not his legacy would be continued or his uh, postponed project if there are any uh, not being completed and so on uh, that's one possibility like habibi when he left the presidency he he didn't want to run again and then after after he left the presidency he almost never interfere with whatever uh, presidents after him does so if president jokowi that's uh that that will be an issue but mm. the other side of the coin is that he want to make sure that the legacy continues on so he would be a, a kingmaker right uh trying to make sure that the the, the president uh, who was elected in 2024 would be someone friendly to his program and then the, would not uh, end the legacies and so on and so forth and that would mm-hmm. you know affect the outcome and, or even the process as as yeah. we know uh, he's not of course the strongest uh, person in PDIP right because uh, Megawati is certainly the strongest one he's not always been a good term with PDIP as well as we know uh, right it's kind of a strange relationship that president jokowi has with PDIP so then the, what will he do if he has someone in mind but then he needs to find political vehicles for this person and, and yes. that would create all these conflicts right ah that's an interesting scenario because obviously i wanted to talk about the succession or non-succession plan within the PDIP 
we haven't talked about the fact that people only a few months ago were still talking and in fact until now are still talking about the prospect of Jokowi going for a third term that somehow they could amend the constitution to allow it. He has said no, that won't be happening. But yeah, what what you've laid out there is the problem that is before PDIP and before Jokowi in terms of his legacy, which is who will succeed him as uh, the candidate there. And so I guess the elephant in the room here, Phillips, if you want to look into your crystal ball and try to predict it, but what will they do with Puan Maharani? What will they do with Ganja Pranowo? What will they do with Prabowo Subianto? Well, you know, Gemma, I have a training in political science as if there is science to politics, right? <laughs> so using crystal ball might be more <laughs> persuasive than, the, than the, the science part of politics. Well, at this stage, I really don't know how to answer the question. But again, because uh, as I said, presidential elections really is really affected by it's a popularity contest in a way. So one of the good indicators for everybody aspiring to be a president, of course, how well you do in the survey. So, you know, the question of Puan and then the others probably, then the, they have to calculate really their own chance. If Paul said that you are at the bottom of all, then the, you, know, you are going to waste your, uh, your time, energy, money, and probably cost your own political parties. Right. Because, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but this, this, this is what's interesting, isn't it? Because Puan is regularly polling, you know, two, four percent electability, very, very low. Yes. And yet we've seen in the last even the last few weeks that the party are throwing themselves behind a campaign really to improve her her right. profile, aren't they? So it's a it feels like a last ditch effort. Right. The good thing about PDIP is that their political machinery, the political machine is, uh, I think, is the strongest among political parties in Indonesia. They have really deep-rooted, I think, support, especially in Java. So probably they are hoping that uh, by using this party machine to prop up the uh, electability of Puan might work. But uh, I think after, uh, like you said, a last-ditch effort, it doesn't improve much. So I think they have to rethink about this. There has been some speculation that probably there will be some combination between uh, Gerindra and PDIP. That's also another possibility. And they did in 2009. Uh, Megawati and Prabowo run on the same ticket. And that is not impossible. But again, mm. I think this is a, a direct election process. They really have to count their chance. Otherwise, they might be losing the election. And mm. uh, on the question of uh, Pak Prabowo, he's, uh, he's been trying <laughs> so many times. He might try again. But I think, like you said, now we have more than 60% uh, of the voters in the Indonesian population under 40 years old. We really have a young population. And we need to find someone <laughs> that can represent, you know, the era, you know, so to speak. And then uh, maybe it would be, uh, of course, we cannot prevent Pak Prabowo from running again. But uh, I think it would, you know, uh, we are losing the chance of having really a, a change in terms of generation. I think. In yeah, a renewal. We have a stock of, of leaders, potential leaders right now, like we discussed earlier. You know, these people from private sectors, from head of government, head of local governments, and so on. So uh, 
it's going to be a lost opportunity you know if we could not really force generational change to happen in 2024 we said this yeah. in 2014 by the way <laughs> right and then again in 2019 we said the same thing <laughs> that uh, yeah. you know uh, I, i do hope that uh, it would really happen in 2024 but mm-hmm. uh, that uh, question on the generation side I think what we really need is I firmly believe that uh, the the challenge for Indonesia is technocratic ones really the pandemic exposed so many weaknesses of our technocratic capability in in dealing with problems you know mm. we, so what are you what are you ideally looking or predicting here that you have a technocrat who's also charismatic that can carry off the role of a leader you know a large personality but it can also be someone that has got the job done has a track record the combination of those i mean uh, yeah. that requires new ways of thinking right uh, new ways of, of leaders who are sensitive to uh, political aspects of uh, governance but also sensitive to the technocratic side of the governance someone who really understand the new challenge you you have uh, climate change is real right Uh, we are seeing more hydrometeorological disasters in Indonesia. <laughs> What other evidence you, you need to show that you really need these uh, uh, leaders who have sensitivities to research to technocratic part of the government, right? We have more forest fires <laughs> in the past few years, as you might know. Even we had cyclone in NTT a few months ago yes. that was so devastating. And, and currently flooding in Kalimantan and in Jakarta too. Everywhere, you know. And then the, unfortunately, even our local governments, some of them are not really prepared for this because uh, probably they see politics as usual. Uh, they they do not fully understand the scope and the magnitude of, of challenges that we have right now. Mm. And so do you think, this is this was the question I, I was coming to, is... Um, In 2024, you know, again, thinking about voters here, what do you think are the issues that they're going to be concerned about and what's going to drive them? Is climate change one of them, particularly because we're talking about a lot of younger people? You know, a later survey showed that uh, people are not really talking about climate change, but I suspect it's not that people do not care, but because of the sophistication level of, uh, of absorbing information. People know that there are more plot but they would not uh, you know immediately associate that with the climate change you know they they don't know but they yeah. know they feel that more forest fire right and then the, that's enough for them to know that there's something wrong with our policies in forestry for example but they they probably wouldn't you know they wouldn't care much about what caused that uh, whether it's a more dry season that we have and so on and so forth so i think Uh, it depends on how the campaign frame the discussion. It's like uh, you know President Jokowi in 2014. Uh, suddenly he talked about maritime issues, something that the uh, Indonesian at that time would not pick up. But then the, because of the narrative that he developed, it was like, well, you are right. You know, Indonesia is, is a we have more water than land in Indonesia, and then. The, You know, he he frame it as such that uh, link it with the infrastructure. Um, he's going to build more ports. You know, uh, uh, what else? Uh, the term he used, uh, toll out, you know, sea toll, and so on. Uh, completely yeah. new vocabulary for Indonesians. And then suddenly, people 
see him as someone with new ideas vision yeah new vision and so on yeah yeah i mean again we're talking about two years time i mean the, the campaigning will obviously start in, in about a year or so but as you've outlined the pandemic is still with us so there will be that and the health issues and then also obviously recovery economic recovery three things that always come up in surveys uh, i think almost all of the survey agency ask the same question what are the priority issue for you inequality job security and the price of table food, basic necessities. So, and uh, in essence, they are all uh, economic questions. Yeah. It consistently appears in all these various surveys. These top three issues are economy. And now yeah. it, it, it really depends on the, you know, whoever run for the presidency, how you're going to frame it in the language that people would understand. Yeah. And what about civil rights? Is that something that you mentioned the omnibus law, you know, there's been issues well, that have come up. Well, to be up. frank, unfortunately, I think uh, in, in the survey, it does not get a lot of attention. I think it's natural because, uh, you know, people uh, who are really affected by this, uh, as we know, not only in Indonesia, I think, uh, everywhere, it's uh, people at the bottom group of the economic brackets, right? Because they are the ones who lose job, middle class or upper middle class, they have savings, they can survive another year. Uh, of, of COVID-19, but these people in Indonesia, uh, most of the economy, I think, uh, as you also might know, uh, run by informal economy. The street food sellers, suddenly they could not go outside because of this the restriction. And then all these informal sectors basically died down during the pandemic. So they are the ones who really affected. So for them, of course, uh, economy is number one issues. And as I said, because of now the era of big government that the government want to push through all this economic agenda, uh, recovery, because I think they feel that if they cannot prove that they will bring recovery, their political survival <laughs> also will be at stake, right? So uh, this combination of the needs for recovery and the era of big government with substantial support from the parliament, political parties, and if necessary, from the DNI and police, you know, in order to maintain social order, then the trade-off mm -hmm. is, of course, you have a reduced uh, civil liberty in some sense. Right? Yeah. So I think yeah. that's what we see in, in Indonesia. And uh, I do hope that we will quickly recover. So then we would regain that civic space that actually has been shrinking, you know, over the years, uh, not only in the era of uh, President Jokowi, but on that particular aspect, I think Indonesia still has uh, a problem uh, since 1998, right? Because so many unfinished uh, human rights violation problem and violence continue to occur in, in, in places, you know, in Papua and others. So on that kind of aspect, it's, uh, it's not only a problem that we see now, but it's uh, also a problem that uh, we have yet to resolve <laughs> since 1998. So, yeah. Uh, well, the, well the, yeah, I mean, then now what we will wait and see is if there is a candidate, a leader emerges who is brave enough to speak about those issues in this new younger generation that you're talking about, perhaps there is somebody there that um, has that potential. Also, I, I can't not ask you the question, Phillips, where are the female candidates here? Where are the women? You know, we've only mentioned Puan. Is there anyone else on the horizon here? Yeah, uh, I think... Uh... Kofifa, the governor of East Java, might be a good candidate, at least for 
vice presidential candidate. But of course, there is a caveat. You really have to have a strong narratives about female candidate. And then we do have uh, Risma, mayor of Surabaya. People in Surabaya loved her very much because of what she's been doing for Surabaya. Not because she's a female a mayor, but because she is representing the, the new generation of leaders that, again, as I said, is uh, with technocratic skills. To build a city as complex as Surabaya is the second largest city in Indonesia. So uh, it requires a, a tough and strong leaders, male or female. Don't forget Sri Mulyana. She's uh, one of the toughest finance ministers. You think she's a likely candidate? Well, at least I would say uh, as a vice president, she would be fantastic, I think. But not for president? Uh, she is a non-party member. And that's, I think, really one obstacle for her to get this nomination from political parties. Uh, Risma is associated with PDIP. She got support from Ibu Mega, right? And she's pretty close to Viva, of course, she has a base, an NU base, a huge base. Sri Mulyani is pure technocrat. She's not a political figure in terms of political platform she doesn't have. So that's why I think it will be difficult for her to become a, a presidential candidate. This is where we began the conversation, which was about the parties still controlling exactly. uh, what happens here in this uh, Indonesian democracy and the elections and the race to 2024. Thank you so much for talking to us and so much more to be discussed in the next few years. So I hope to have you back. Thank you, Yama. Thank you. Bye. That was Phillips Vermont, Dean of the Faculty of Social Sciences at the Indonesian International Islamic University and Executive Director of the Centre for Strategic and International Studies in Jakarta. Talking Indonesia will return on the 9th of December, hosted by Dave McRae. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now.